We're in the middle of a sermon series called Freedom from Religion. And the reason why we chose to study the book of Galatians is because we believe that one of the major obstacles to the good news of Jesus Christ in the church in Galatia is also one of the major obstacles to the good news of Jesus Christ in Green Bay, which is religion. Uh, Religion can oftentimes keep people away from ever needing Jesus because they go to church They do good things, they pray, they maybe even read their Bible, and they think that they don't need Jesus. And we see that Paul writes against that ferociously in this book. Today, the question that we're going to look at is, what is a spirit-filled church? What is a spirit-filled church? Friday night, we... uh, a couple guys, we went out to the racetracks in Luxembourg, and we had a, a great time. And anytime the, the, the motors revved up or anytime there was a crash, the crowd got very spirited, right? They got excited. Ooh, ah, you know, like there was one time where a car flipped over twice, and all, all the men were going crazy. I don't know why we take pleasure in other people's pain, but it was awesome. So it was very awesome. And, uh, and and so, you know, we get spirited. But what does it mean to be a spirit-filled church? This was a question that a pastor asked on his blog, and it was entertaining because he got a mile-long worth of responses on his blog. But he asked this question because a woman had been coming to his church for quite some time, and finally he encouraged her. He said, hey, why don't you, would you be interested in coming to the membership class? And her response to him was, oh, you know, I love the people. The people here are just so loving and wonderful. And I love the teaching, but I could just never be a part of a church that isn't spirit-filled. And he's sitting there saying, huh? And he says, so tell me, what's the difference between our church and a spirit-filled church? And uh, and she was surprised that he would ask that question. And she said, you know, spirit-filled churches, they clap, they dance, they They speak in tongues, they heal. That's the spirit-filled church. And that's the type of church I need to be a part of. And trying to gently challenge her, he said, could it be that good teaching and good community could be fruits of the spirit? That even that might be a spirit-filled church. He goes on to ask this question for all the bloggers out there. He says, is this answer I gave a cop-out? Do we really like our reserved way because we like things scripted and safe? We're not sure that the Spirit is really present among us, so we heap scorn on those who say they are sure. What are the marks of a Spirit-filled church? What is a Spirit-filled church? That's what we're going to look at today from Galatians chapter 5. If you would please turn there. Galatians 5 verse 25. In the Red Bible, it's page 974. Galatians 5, 25 through 6, 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to this text today, God, we, we desire to be a spirit-filled church. We pray that you would teach us what that looks like and how we can be an intimate part of that, God. Because we know that where your spirit is, there is great freedom, there is great joy, there is great restoration. And we, all of us need it, God. And so help us, Lord Jesus. Pray that we would understand how to apply this text in the grace of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, you may remember, we talked about walking by the Spirit and what it means to walk by the Spirit as we fight against the flesh. Paul goes on to talk about what it looks like to walk by the Spirit in a church context, what it means to be people who live by the Spirit of God. And so what, we're gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm basically just going to give you the big idea, the main point, the, the propositions, what we call it, of what I think this scripture is saying is a spirit-filled church. And then we're going to tear it apart and look at it up close, okay? So a spirit-filled church, and this is in your bulletin as well, a spirit-filled church is a church filled with humble, burden-bearers, that are empowered and guided by the Holy Spirit. Let me read it one more time. A spirit-filled church is a church filled with humble burden bearers that are empowered and guided by the Holy Spirit. All right, now let's tear that apart and look at it. First, empowered and guided by the Holy Spirit. We'll take the end first. Now, we talked about this a lot last week, and so I'm not going to cover it uh, in much detail, but Galatians 5.25 is such an important verse. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. He's saying that all who trust in Christ live by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like an unceasing engine that is breathing spiritual life into you. The Holy Spirit, the, the, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of you and it gives you spiritual life. And because he has given you life, because he is with you, you should also live according to the Spirit. You should walk in step with the Spirit, is literally what it says. And so to walk in step with the Spirit, we said it's like a GPS in your car, right? The GPS tells you what direction to go and you can either choose to follow it or you can choose to go your own way. And depending on the GPS, one may be a good choice, one may not be. But you have this internal GPS called the Holy Spirit. And when your flesh is screaming at you, go this way, go this way, go this way, the Holy Spirit whispers to you, take the narrow path, take the way of righteousness, take the way of life. And the Holy Spirit whispers to you through prayer, through scripture, through the church, telling you this is the way that God has given for you to be fully human. Take this way. But then the, the, the verse continues, and it continues into verse 26 and chapter 6, and it, and it applies it not only to our lives but to our community. 
what does it look like to be a church that not only lives by the Spirit, but walks by the Spirit? What is a Spirit-filled church? And so we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we are guided by the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, back to the big idea. A Spirit-filled church is a church filled with humble burden bearers. Humble. In this, in this passage, Paul spends a lot of time attacking pride, as we'll see as we pull this out. A lot of time saying, okay, the thrust of this passage is you should bear one another's burdens. But then there's this blinking yellow light all around saying, in humility, check your pride. So he gives this great elaborate, how do we do this, okay? And so we're going to walk through these verses and look at that and see what is this yellow light of self-assessment in which we would be humble in approaching one another and bearing one another's burdens. Verse 26 says this, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word conceited here in Greek literally means let us not become proud. Let us not have vain glory. And he goes on to attack pride. Now before we sort of dive into uh, attacking this bad pride, certainly there is good pride and there is bad pride, right? Um, and so it's important for us to distinguish that good pride is when you are humbled by a gift that God has given to you. You see what God has given to you and you say, I don't deserve this. This is something, this is a grace that God has given to me and I am so thankful for it. A bad pride is a pride that makes you arrogant. It says, I deserve this or having this makes me better than you or you or you and anything that we find our acceptance and our approval in other than God can be a source of bad pride, okay? And so we're going to look at this bad pride because this is what God, what Paul really talks about here in this passage. He, said, he, he says, do not become conceited. Do not become prideful. Uh, when you read this passage, you may be like me and think, well, you know, I'm a really humble guy, right? I love the applications you always get from people. What is your best attribute, right? Just put in there, I'm the humblest person I know, okay? You understand the joke, all right. But um, pride is, is such a big issue. C.S. Lewis would say, C.S. Lewis, who's a, a great Christian writer, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, if you do not believe you are prideful, you are the most prideful of all people. You see, pride manifests itself in our lives as we, as we glow in things that we have, whether it be material things or whether it be talents that God has given to us or even our treasures. We use those things to give ourselves validity, to give ourselves approval before other people and before God. And so we see this. Um, some of you may be here today. You have been You've been checking out Christianity. You have been learning about what it is. And you understand that you are fallen, that you're sinful, that God has sent his son to save you. And yet you will not take that step of faith. You will not trust in Christ. And it says it's because of your pride. Because you say, I will not surrender my life to God. I know better than God. I can handle my life better than God. And so I would never surrender my life to a God that I don't trust. It's rooted in pride. I, I had a conversation with a girl at a breakfast table, and she says, yes, I, I know I'm a sinner. Yes, I know Jesus died for my sins. And I said, do you want to place your trust in him? She says, no. 
Why not? I don't know. I just don't want to have to answer to anyone. It's pride. We also struggle with pride in the Christian life, obviously. There are areas of our life where we say, okay, God, I will give you Sunday morning, but please don't try to touch my marriage. I'll give you community group or Bible study or whatever, but please don't don't make me do anything about my job. Don't make me change there. And so pride is, is the sin that keeps us from God. It is the central thing that opposes God. It's us waging war against God. And so pride is something that Paul attacked with full force here, even as how we would confront one another. I have a friend in Missouri who would often say, comparison is the theft of joy. Comparison is a theft of joy. And the reason why he said that is because when you compare yourself with other people, there are two things that can happen. One, you'll lose, right? you lose. That person has a nicer TV. They're more gifted at your job. They're better at sports. They're prettier. They're better looking. Whatever it might be, you compare yourself and you lose. And Paul says the result of that is envy, right? We lose and we say we have to have that because our security and our acceptance before God and other people is dependent on us being better than the others. So you're envious, right? I need to have the bigger TV. I need to be better at this sport. I need to be better at my job than this person because then I will get the approval that I need. The other side is if you compete and you win, then you become arrogant. Then you become prideful. And he, t- he talks about this here as provoking, that we challenge people and we say, let's compare and we win. We compare with one another. It is dangerous. This was actually, you wouldn't think it, but this was actually a, a very um, prevalent temptation in seminary. When I went to seminary, you leave wherever you are and you go to seminary to get trained for ministry. And I remember the first year just getting sort of angry whenever I heard someone preach a really good sermon. Or I get angry when I was like, man, that guy is really good at connecting with other people. Or I get angry because this other guy, he just understood the Bible so much more than I did. It just made me mad that they were so good. And finally, God sat me down midway through my first year and said, Dan, that's not why I accept you. That's not why I love you. That's not where your approval comes from. You can celebrate their gifts. You can praise God for a good preacher. You can praise God for a wise man. You don't have to compare. See, my pride took a major hit. And it wasn't until God corrected me that I was able to enjoy seminary. (laughs) That I was able to enjoy the gifts that God has given to other people. And so part of our interaction with other people, it's extremely important that we aren't prideful. Paul goes on to attack pride more in this passage, and I'm going to try to condense this part because um, we have some important stuff to get to. But in verse 3, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. All right, John Piper, I had to listen to his sermon to, for the next few verses, as you'll see, because they're difficult. But he talks about this great myth that we have in modern psychology over the past hundred years, which is self-esteem. That you need to believe in yourself, that you need to look to yourself, that you need to find the good in yourself to find joy, to find relief, to find salvation. 
And he goes on to say, you know, self-esteem obviously is not uh, part of what Scripture commands us to believe. Every person has value and dignity and worth because they are created in the image of God. But self-esteem, when it runs its course, runs its course, it runs dry. Because right here he says, if you think you're something morally, if you have the moral character, the goodness, if you think you are something, you are actually nothing and you deceive yourselves. And this is actually, uh, this is actually what the entire scriptures say. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Romans 3, 10 through 12, just so you know, it's not an Old Testament thing. None is righteous. In Greek, the word none means none. Not one. Okay? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so he says, if you think you're something, if you think that you are a guide to the blind, that you're a help to the helpless, you deceive yourself. Now, you may be looking at these passages and saying, that's really depressing. (laughs) But it's true. And it leads to great hope, which we will get to later. But that in our own flesh, there is nothing good to give. Verse 4 goes on. But let each one of you test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. All right, here's my confession. These two verses tormented me all week because they are so confusing to me. First, or Second Peter says, Paul says some things that are hard to understand. This would be one of them. I listened to three sermons. I read three commentaries. And they said six different things. And so here's my shot, all right? With humility, I'm going to give this to you because I, I think this is what he's talking about because he's really attacking pride. In both of these verses, he's talking about a future tense. It's, a, it's something that's happening in the future on the day of judgment. And what he's saying is that you will not be able to compare yourself to other people on that day. That you will stand on your own before God. You won't be standing there with a bunch of axe murders and saying, look, I'm not an axe murderer. Let me into heaven right? You're not comparing yourself. You will stand before God alone and you will have to give an account for your life. But we fall short, right? So is Paul saying, okay, we're going to stand before God and we're going to tell him how good we are. And then he's going to let us into heaven. Well, if you've been here before, you know that the entire book, this entire letter is written against that thought that if we, if we get a ceremonial sign applied to us, that God will save us, or if we're good enough, that God will save us. Even if you bounce down uh, a few verses, Galatians six thirteen through 14 says this, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, here it is, that they may boast in your flesh. Right? That's a bad thing. Verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Okay, and so here does verse 14 and verse 4, do they oppose each other? He says, boast in yourself. And then, and then just a few verses later, and Paul's not an unintelligent man. 
right? He's not a fool. He knows what he's just written. Just a few verses later, he says, boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so how does this make sense? And I think Galatians 2.20 is extremely helpful here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so on the day when you stand before God, you will not be able to say, look, I am better than all these other people. But you will say, I have Jesus Christ inside of me and his righteousness applied to me. And so I can boast in myself because Christ lives in me. And so what we need is not self-confidence, but it's Christ's confidence. That Jesus Christ is our righteousness, that he is everything good inside of us. And as we go and we bear one another's burdens, it is important to know that we have nothing good in ourselves to offer others. The only thing we have to offer other people is Jesus. Christ in us, working through us and coming out of us. A few illustrations for you. First, um, I'm the youngest of five children in my family. We were the Jackson Five. And... uh, we made no money singing, and uh, I except people would probably pay us not to sing, but other than that. Um, but at Christmas, it was a fun time. My mom was under the philosophy of, you know, if you're going to spend $20 on a kid, buy 20 different things, right? It wasn't buy one $20 gift. And so we had tons of gifts. And as the youngest, I got to distribute those gifts, right? And I'd give them to my, to my brothers and sisters, and we all actually liked each other on that day. And they'd say, thank you for the gift, and they'd enjoy it. I didn't get, I I didn't buy the gift. I was just the distributor of the gift. Second illustration. Last night we went to the Packers game because uh, actually Pastor Troy called me and said, hey, I got five tickets. You want them? And I said, sure. So I got the tickets and I took three other folks with me and um, one of them offered to pay me. And I said, no, 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 no. This, these tickets, they were free to me, right? I'm just distributing them to you. I'm not going to take your money. Third illustration, and this one I love. We're kind of like a sprinkler. In and of ourselves, really, we don't have anything we can do, right? A sprinkler on a shelf, unhooked up to a hose, is not a very useful sprinkler. Maybe you can use it as a paperweight, but that's about it. But when you attach the hose, when you turn the water on, when you fill that sprinkler, it sprays everywhere around it. We are told that we are filled with Christ. Christ is in us. And as he wells up inside of us, he sprinkles out to all who are around us. And so when we go to one another who are in burden, the only thing that we can give them is Christ in us. But there's great humility because we know it's nothing in us. It's only Jesus that gives us anything good to give to anyone else. And so we go with great humility. All right, now let's look at the thrust of this passage that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In this verse, there's a great assumption that we all have burdens. Uh, It actually says that mutually or reciprocally, so literally mutually carry one another's burdens. All of us have burdens. The Fricks just moved to town. I don't know them, but I know they have burdens because they're human. (laughs) I don't have to know you to know you have burdens. We all have burdens. And he says, mutually carry one another's burdens. It's a picture of physically weight being other people helping you carry a a heavy physical weight. This past week, I cut down a tree branch in my side yard and I tried to pick it up to put in my trailer. It's just too big, too heavy. So my neighbor came over and picked it up with me. We carried it to our trailer, right? He helped me 
bear that burden. Um, or when I fill my trailer up too much and I have to ask my pregnant wife to come out and help me lift it and move it, right? She's bearing the burden with me. She's making the burden lighter for me so that we can move, so that we can progress. They help bear the burden. And Paul uses this metaphor to say there are matters in your life that are too heavy. You are not intended to handle them on your own. And these could be different things. They could be financial. If you're unemployed and you're looking for a job, you can walk into a person's life and you can help bear that burden, either financially or by helping them look for a job, or you can give them counsel or whatever it might be. You can hire them to come watch your kids, to mow your grass, to do whatever it is, to help bear that burden in their life. It could be emotional, and I think this is what a large part of bearing the burden is. If someone is lonely, being an ear to listen to, taking them out for a cup of coffee, having them over for dinner. If someone has lost a loved one or has a transition in life, and it's just, it's just difficult. We're all going through this, right? To be a burden bearer, to be an ear to hear what's going on in their life. It probably won't feel like a lot to you. You'll probably go and say, I don't have the answers. But what happens when somebody shares the burden in their life with you is that the weight slowly slides from their shoulders to yours. And your burden becomes greater, but their burden becomes less, even just by listening. And so we're called to bear one another's burdens. Paul says, when you do this, you fulfill the law of Christ. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I have a, a friend, and I was asking him, what would your perfect day look like? You know, no, no expenses spared. You could do whatever you want, have whoever you want. What would you do? And I'm thinking, you know, Packers game, cookout, whatever. That would be my perfect day. But, And uh, without hesitation, he goes, a day free of fear and anxiety. That's his perfect day. This is a burden that my brother carries. And I hear him sharing it with me often. And honestly, I don't have all the right answers. I point him to Jesus, but he still carries that burden. And I think a lot of times we're afraid to help people because we don't have the answers. But every time he's able to share his fear and anxiety with me, I'm able to, share, to, to bear a little bit of his burden. Not a lot, but a little bit. And to love him and care for him just by listening to him. I have people that I go to when ministry is a heavy burden. Other pastors, and they speak into my life, and they help shoulder that burden. Now, I want you to notice, as we look at this, this is extremely important, that you cannot fulfill the law of Christ. You cannot be a spirit-filled church in isolation. You have to be in community. You have to be with people. You have to be talking and engaging with one another so that we can pray for one another, share with one another, not with everyone, but find people that are trusted people that you can share your burdens with. I'm going to give a shameless plug for community groups. They're starting up uh, the week after Labor Day in September. Community groups is something which I already expressed. We love here at Jacob's Well. It's a time where we actually find great community. One of the ways I know that is usually because when community group is over, you got to kick people out of the house. They just want to stick around and talk and hang out and socialize because we so much enjoy. We gather for Bible study, for prayer, for a little bit of dessert, if you're good. 
And then we usually talk and talk and talk. This is a great place to bear one another's burdens. This is the group that will bring you meals when you're in the hospital. This is, this is the group that will help you move. This is the group that is the primary burden bearers for you spiritually and physically at Jacob's Well. And so I'd encourage you to get connected when that time comes. Okay, we need to get to verse 1. One way to bear burdens is to restore a brother. And this is something that is absolutely intimidating to American Christians, especially Midwesterners, that are so nice, it hurts their brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 1, brothers, if any of anyone is caught in sin, uh, excuse me, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we're just going to look at what, who, and how this verse is talking about. First off, what? Restore. This is a command from Paul. This is not an option. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. If you see someone that is weighted in sin, you need to go to them for their restoration. The picture here is actually a picture of fishing nets being mended together to restore them or a broken bone being put back in place where it belongs that it could once again grow and thrive and operate how God created it to. And so we are called to go to those that are, are in sin and in gentleness and love and humility pointed out. Now this probably freaks a lot of you out, doesn't it? It freaks me out. Look who he says should do this. He says, you who are spiritual. Now you might think, whew, good. I'm not very spiritual. <laughs> but remember what he said back in 525. All who trust in Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And one way that you walk in step with that spirit is to go to a brother and sister in Christ who are in sin and say, I love you enough to tell you I don't want you to keep stabbing yourself with this sin. I don't want you to keep hurting yourself. For us, this is very difficult because we feel like, who am I to tell anyone that what they're doing is wrong? I have my own junk. I have my own mess. I can't go tell other people. But Paul commands that we do that. This is a spirit-filled church. One who would confront one another and say, I see this in your life, and I don't think it's healthy, and I love you enough to tell you that you should stop. Finally, he tells us how we should restore one another. He says, gently. Man, I'm glad for that word. <laughs> gently. Not arrogantly, but humbly, right? This kind of brings us full circle with everything else he's been saying. And humility with gentleness, go to one another and tell them of their sin and help restore them. Be with them for the long haul. When I was in college, my friend, Chad Brewer, I, I, uh, I was going taking some students on a conference and uh, there was me and three other guys and a girl in a car and I thought it'd be funny to have one of the guys read these Bible verses from the Bible that are kind of sexually explicit, kind of goofy and you know we're all laughing, chuckling, whatever. Well about two weeks later Chad comes to me and says, you know the girl that was in that car, she had a history of being sexually abused and that was really hurtful for you to have people read that. And he came gently to restore me 
because he loved me. And I was so appreciative that he wouldn't let me continue in my foolishness. But this is what we're called to do, to go to people, to help restore them. This should be happening at Jacob's Well regularly. Not everybody should know it because this should be happening one-on-one, but this should be happening where we are both confronting and being confronted that we might live in greater freedom. So, final question I kind of want to ask, and I need to wrap this up and run long, but why would we bear one another's burdens? Why would we get involved in each other's lives? It's so much easier to stay isolated. It's so much easier just to run away. Why would we possibly do this? There was an American who went to China, and when he was there, he was walking around, and, uh, and he saw an older boy carrying a little boy who obviously was paralyzed or couldn't walk or something of that sort. And trying to be compassionate, he goes to the older boy and he says, I am, I am so sorry for this heavy burden that you have to carry. And the boy immediately responds, it's not a burden. This is my brother. See, we can bear one another's burdens because there is an ultimate burden bearer that did not stay in heaven, did not remain in isolation, but he came to earth. He came to us. He came to you for you, that he would bear your burden of sin, that he would take your sin upon himself, the full burden, the curse of the law, and he would die for it on the cross. You may remember in Galatians 3, 13, it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took all of your burden that he could become our big brother, that we could become part of his family with one another and then bear one another's burdens. And so we can bear one another's burdens because Christ has taken our burden on himself at the cross and died for it that we might live in freedom. Because Christ has bore our burden, bore our sin. My prayer is that Jacob's well would become more and more a spirit-filled church where in humility we bear one another's burdens through the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us a spirit-filled church. Make us a church where we bear one another's burdens inside and outside community groups. God, pray that we would be the church that you call us to be, God. Whether that is flamboyant or quiet, It doesn't matter, God, but that we would love one another with meekness and gentleness, God, and that we would care enough to maybe confront that brother or sister that's hurting themselves with sin, God. We pray for your power and your strength, and thank you that you are the ultimate burden bearer. In Jesus' name, amen.